Welcome to the Off Street Podcast featuring Adam Reiner and Sean Dan. Off Street contains general information that is not suitable for everyone and contains certain forward-looking statements of future possibilities that due to known and unknown risks and other uncertainties and factors may differ materially from actual results. As such, there is no guarantee that any views and opinions expressed herein will come to pass. Off Street is presented for informational purposes and nothing contained herein should be construed as a solicitation to buy or sell any security or as an offer to provide investment, tax, or legal advice. Additionally, this communication contains information derived from third-party sources. Although we believe these sources to be reliable, we make no representations as to their accuracy or completeness. Adam and Sean are employees of Marshall Financial Group, Inc., a registered investment advisor. For additional information about the firm, including its services and fees, send for the firm's disclosure brochure or visit advisorinfo.sec.gov. All right, Sean, it is Tuesday, November 14th, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. I'm going to start with a Phillies reference. (laughs) (laughs) We just can't break it. We can't. I'm gonna. I'm gonna tie this all. I'm gonna tie this all back together here. All right. Don't worry. We're sorry. We're weaning ourselves <laughs> off here. I'm. I'm in hot stove season. I'm ready for the Phillies to make some moves, Sean. <laughs> okay. But so back in the twenty during the twenty teens, when the Phillies were still somewhat relevant, they were coming off their their playoffs runs. The Phillies ran this commercial set where they had come from behind the wins, and it was just the narrator's voice. They were like the highlights would play of them coming from behind. And the narrator would say, drama, guaranteed. And last week, you and I were having this conversation, not about the Phillies. We're actually talking about the markets. <laughs> Doing our jobs. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, what would, what's one of the catalysts out there that could propel markets forward through the end of the year? And we, we ran through a few. And one of those was a lack of drama. Yes. It wasn't looking so good going into the weekend. Got that, a f- flurry of bad news. Yes, there was the Moody's news that came out on Friday of downgrading the U.S. outlook from AAA stable to AAA negative. There was news over the weekend that perhaps the government may shut down on the 18th if they couldn't reach their, their spending measure. Yep, kind of the impetus for the, the potential downgrade, the negative outlook. Right, and then there was CPI release today which, I don't know, maybe I just have PTSD from the past year and a yeah. half. It's three <laughs> things that would throw us, throw the market for a loop, had the potential to over the past two years. Those three things could give us 2% down days. And we came in on Monday, and it turned out it wasn't that bad regarding the Moody's news. Markets generally ignored it. There was one strategist that sort of summarized what he said, that we learned nothing new from the release. All that yeah. was already known by the market. Yep. Regarding the government shutdown, there's a bill out there right now, H.R. 6363, that would fund the government through the middle of January. These are some good quotes, Sean. House Speaker Johnson said, we need to avoid a government shutdown. So, all right, we all, we're all on the same page there. Good thing to say. And then Senate Majority Leader Schumer said he is heartened by Speaker Johnson's <laughs> stopgap measure. He's heartened. Heartened. I'll have to find the quote. There's a Tom Wamsgams quote from Succession. I think Logan says something to him. He says, oh, Logan, that, that heartens me. It's just a I'm, weird, I'm heartened to hear that. Weird way to speak. But, and then the granddaddy of them all, we had CPI that came out this morning better than expectations. So. We said boring. It was as boring was, and benign as it was we could, boring. could have asked for. Boring was a great number here. Yes. Um, so great that markets are up one and three quarters percent right now. Bond yields have come in. The last I saw, small caps were up in the four percent range. So markets really breathing a sigh of relief that maybe inflation's coming under control. Fed 
doesn't need to raise interest rates again. The runway looks looks wider. We can see more sunlight on the horizon. I think it's just we, we've been climbing this hill, and for so long we, we keep asking, are we at the peak? Are we at the peak? And I think finally we're starting to sigh that relief of obviously no one wants to declare victory, but maybe we're starting to see to the other side. We're getting close to those possible Fed cuts or at least feeling more confident in a pause. It just it lowers the temperature. I think everyone's just we're lowering the temperature right now. We have been doing it all November at this point. It's been a great month. It's been a fantastic month. Before we jumped on to record, I looked into Bloomberg. It looks like chances of a rate hike at the December or January meeting have mostly been priced out of the market at this point. It looks like four rate cuts have been priced in through January 25. It looks like quarter point cuts, but still maybe maybe we're almost there in the, in this cycle and you could argue the psychology of people expecting those and have cuts on the horizon that's worth a couple cuts right there right like we talk about the financial conditions moving without the cuts it's that it does something to, to financial conditions for sure good point i am gonna have to look at the financial conditions index when we're done this to see how it's eased just with rates falling and stocks going up fed probably won't like that but they'll probably like the inflation print even more oh yeah just Interesting. Went through the components of the CPI report. The largest increase month over month was about six and a half percent. It's beautiful. And that was photographic equipment. Even better. A very small <laughs> piece of CPI. That that's not a huge line item in my monthly budget. So it, I'm okay with for that. For me either. <laughs> and the largest month over month decrease was negative ten and a half percent. And that was apples. And I buy apples every week, food shopping. So happy with that part of it. Much more utility in apples for me than photographic equipment. I think that's a that's a sign that peak apple picking season may be behind us. Well, I guess that means we're moving into winter. <laughs> not, o- almost no, at, we're almost not, at spring. We're not doing this. We're not. <laughs> we're just going to trade the Phillies talk for like doom and gloom winter talk. <laughs> we're only about 100 days away from the Phillies' first spring okay. training game. But there's another economic data point that comes out tomorrow, and it is retail sales, retail spending. It's expected to show a month-over-month decline for the first time in a while. I think last month surprised to the upside a little bit. But there have been some stories out there about maybe consumers' spending preferences shifting. There was a story in Bloomberg that said off-price retailers, so like TGX or TJ Maxx, probably most people know them as, Ross, Burlington are all seeing sales rebound, while high-end and luxury brands are seeing slowing growth. And you had saw a story yesterday about Home Depot and Lowe's. Yeah. So in addition to the trade down we're seeing in those clothing retailers, there's a piece that for fiscal year 2024, Home Depot and Lowe's are on track to see their first year-over-year revenue decline since 2010. So almost 15 years. It's very rare we see that. These are two bellwether companies that you usually look to. They give us a good idea of the housing market. They had great years 2020 through 2022. A lot of people buying second homes, maybe renovating their homes. Maybe some of that spending we saw pull forward, pulled forward because now with this this weaker housing market, Lowe's and Home Depot, negative year-over-year sales, just not something you normally see. So I was at Lowe's over the weekend. Okay. I was at Lowe's twice. Okay. We need to replace our artificial tree. All right. Which I feel like you're you're a real tree guy. I'm a purist. Need the real thing. Our one son has allergies, so we have we have to buy the that's, that's artificial fair. tree. That's fair. So Colleen was out doing some stuff on Sunday with her sister or Saturday with her sisters. I took the boys to Lowe's to do advanced scouting. Guys, on, on, guys, tripped on, on the on the trees. <laughs> and while we were there, there was a couple. The somewhere their ages were somewhere between the two of us, and they were looking at, at a certain kind of tree. 
and they're looking at two. They had two options that they were evaluating. One was 498 dollars, so let's call it 500 in round terms, and one was probably like 250. And the hus- the husband was like, "I love this 500 dollar tree." <laughs> That's crazy to me. I know. We talked not to interject here. We talked when you brought that up the other day. I thought you were making a joke. No, it, no in my con- in my confidence interval of what I thought fake trees would go for. I thought max the Rolls Royce of fake trees would be like three hundred dollars tops, maybe two fifty. A five hundred dollar tree. Little did I know that's not even the most premium no, option no. there. The designer artificial tree <laughs> brands push into the four figures, Sean. It's crazy. But if you bought one this past weekend, they were like forty five percent off. So you could have got them in the hundreds. <laughs> in in the hundreds. In the hundreds. What a sales pitch there. <laughs> so anyway, back to this couple. They ultimately decided to buy the less expensive tree. Okay. They just couldn't bring themselves to spend that much on, on the artificial tree. Makes sense. So we went back with Colleen on Sunday to look at these trees. We liked the one. Not sure what to get. Right? Don't want to replace it all that often. And I don't know, the other couple traded down. Who knows? Maybe if it's 2021, asset prices are rising. Maybe you have enough confidence to buy the designer tree. But yeah, it's still something about spending that much money on an artificial tree that gets you. So we opted for like the big box tree okay. instead of the artificial tree okay. or the, the luxury brand tree. So maybe a little bit of trading down. Perhaps. Which it makes sense. I definitely feel that pull in, in my spending categories as well. Like you said, in 2021 when everything's going up, maybe, hey, what the hell? Let's have a nice Christmas. Let's get the, let's get the great tree. Yeah, that was, that was also <laughs> a weird time, right? You're like... Who know? Who knows how many Christmases there are left, right? It was a weird, yeah. It was a weird time for you, you all start making psychology. all these like false arguments in your mind, like why you should spend the money. There but, was also a ton of fiscal stimulus out there at the time too. So. Yeah, money was had to go somewhere, like you said. So, I think that's a good microcosm of probably where we're at and why tomorrow we may get a, a slightly negative retail sales number. I think the Fed will welcome it. I think that's what we need for a soft landing scenario. There was consumer confidence data that was put out by the conference board at the end of October, and it says consumers remain pessimistic about the future, even as they continue to spend. But I think if you boil down consumers' expectations, I describe them as bearish. Though when you ask them about their own financial situation six months forward, they're still pretty positive. Most people still expect their own situation for their family to be better, which doesn't really tie out. The gap is like the gap. It's not super uncommon for that gap to be there. The gap right now is particularly big. I know we've tried to rack our brains a lot over the past couple of weeks as, as to why that is. It's probably a lot of factors. I think negative news. think, uh, you know, political fighting that that's constant is, is dragging on people. And then like we talked about. The feeling that now you need to trade down, you feel a little more constrained, you have less optionality than you had in 2021, probably all those together kind of create that storm of negativity about today while still not feeling terrible about the future. Those are good ideas. The write-in responses in the survey showed consumers were preoccupied with rising prices in general and for grocery and gasoline prices in particular. Consumers also expressed concerns about the political situation and higher interest rates. So it just feels like a combination of everything. It's the, right play, now. It's the playbook of the of the past year, past year plus, which has led to a lot, of, a lot of market volatility. And with market volatility, sequence of returns always become important. Sean, yes. And Dave Ramsey set off. I feel like a social media firestorm last week when he started talking about 
sustainable withdrawal rates from portfolios. Yes. Maybe I'll be careful here of what I say. I know we, we've talked about Dave Ramsey a little bit in the past. Maybe I have more opinionated views than you do on him, but he said something last week that was pretty controversial. I think pretty horrible advice, just full stop. But he took a shot at us too. He called people like us who like more conservative return estimates, super nerds who live in our parents' basements. Do you live in your Do you live in your parents' <laughs> I, basements? I do not. I'll you know I'll call me super nerd. I got my calculator at my desk just like you do. But but if I did, we'd have a very nice artificial tree. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you would. <laughs> but basically, for those who didn't see it, a caller called into Dave Ramsey's radio show. He was thinking towards retirement. He wanted to know what is a safe amount that he could withdraw from his retirement assets to where he wouldn't run out of money. The golden rule that people have quoted for forever is about 4%, usually oscillates around there. And Dave Ramsey came out and said he thinks you can do at least 8 He said you can do at least 8% a year because equities do 12% a year. So if you assume 4% inflation, you can take out 8% every year and be fine. Didn't Ramsey's own one of Ramsey's own analysts say 3%? Yes, and that that was the best part too is like the guy quoted one of Dave, Dave Ramsey's guys had put out a piece saying, you know, maybe maybe we adjust the 4% rule down to 3%. And Dave Ramsey called him an idiot on air. <laughs> Just he said I hope it's tough. I hope we're not putting out that terrible advice. But basically he went on the, on this rant/tantrum. Terrible advice. Equities don't do 12% every year. And like you said, with sequence of return risk, you definitely can't bank on great returns every single year. Yeah, it's it's challenging. So I put together a small little mock-up for the, for the podcast. It's hard to do numbers on the podcast, but just we, try, yeah. try to stick with me here. Okay. So you start with a million-dollar portfolio, and then you have this sequence of returns. Up 15%, up 15%, down 20%, up 10%, up 15%. So the average return is seven. It's not 12, but the standard deviation of those returns is 15. So we're pretty close to what market does on average. If you withdrew 8% from the portfolio every year, at the end of that five-year period, your portfolio balance would be a little less than 900,000. If you withdrew 4%, your portfolio balance would be 1.1 million. So that's a pretty big difference. And it's a pretty small period of time we did that over. But it just shows when you have a high draw and the sequence of returns, while they may average out to seven, it's like the sequencing that matters and the draw that you're taking when you're drawing a big amount on a down market, it compresses everything and there's less to recover. This argument also would rely on people in retirement being 100% invested in equities. Not something most people would do, not something most people would suggest for sure. And there are periods where you you probably would face running out of money. Like if you retired, say you were awful at your retirement time and you retired in 2000 or 2008, there's a good chance within five, six years, if you're taking out 8% of that original principal each year and you get down 20%, down 30, 40% years, pretty soon that money, that goes away quickly. Yeah. More also part of the fallacy is also looking at average returns instead of geometric returns. Like maybe that's when Dave Ramsey would call us super nerds. We're going to that level of detail, but there's a big difference. When, yeah, it makes when, when something's down 50%, you don't need to go up 50% to recover, right? Like, but if you just average negative 50 and plus 50, 
you, you come out to zero. It's not the way it works in like real math. No. You lose 50%, and you need 100% return. You need, you need 100% return. It's a big difference. It's not, you don't average out to zero after that. It's like I'm down 50 and I was up 50. I'm back to where I started. I also have no idea where he gets this quote of the 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 broad stock market. He says the stock, he said stocks, I think is what he said. Yeah. So if we use the, the general stock benchmark, the S&P 500, I have no idea where he gets 12% a year from. Over long-term time horizons, we couldn't really find a significantly long horizon where you got 12% a year. It happens in shorter periods, but even over 10 years, from 1950 to today, only 13.2% of 10-year rolling periods, so one out of every seven, did we see annualized returns of 12% or higher. It's just not great. And, And the argument he uses, too, if you find yourself a good mutual fund, is what he said. Okay. <laughs> just even that's kind of a fallacy. Like you don't know what the good mutual funds are before you buy into them. That's something you find out looking back. Yes. It's just and every past oh. performance is not indicative of future results. No, exactly. And in the argument too, he's like, these nerds with their calculators, they don't have investments. I like lived this and I withdrew eight <laughs> percent a year. Just because it, it worked for you over a certain time period doesn't mean it's evergreen. It's just there are so many red Not flags. Not to mention that Dave Ramsey probably has a lot of cash flow coming in from different sources. Yes. That's like besides the point. But Yes. He makes – yeah. <laughs> oh, there's just so many things. We could go on forever about this stuff. But One of the things that frustrates me is like they always talk about where do consumers turn to for advice, right? We're all – we're registered investment advisors. There's a lot of rules and regulations over what we can say and can't say. Dave Ramsey somehow is a financial coach not registered, he's not a financial advisor, but can give this advice. So like people hear one thing and then we have to say anything. It's almost like the conversation we had with Brian Walsh from That's SoFi. That's exactly what I thought of. Because one of his main points was he started doing this even though it made him feel a little uncomfortable and goofy because he knows there's people that are giving bad advice. So he's like, he kind of felt a responsibility to step up to the plate. Not to say we're perfect or we always give good advice or try and give advice, but a Dave Ramsey is a type of guy of why we even started this thing in the first place because there's a lot of bad advice out there and we try and at least maybe neutralize a little bit or push back on it. Because we have to give advice that we believe is in the client's best interest. Yes, fiduciaries. Yes, we are fiduciaries and there's a big difference between being that and just taking calls from a radio show and being a financial coach yeah. and non-registered. We could do a 10-episode series on everything that's wrong with with Dave Ramsey's advice, but I guess we'll, we'll keep it there for right now. But just when you hear stuff like that, that sounds crazy and too good to be true, probably worth looking into because that's just flat out horrible advice. Yeah, I think part of what Dave Ramsey had said was uh, he doesn't like the negativity or something to that effect that the 4% draw rate has doesn't give people hope. Yeah. People hopeless. <laughs> what doesn't give people hope is losing all their money yes. because they withdrew too much in retirement <laughs> in a down market. But, Anyway, like you said, we could probably rant about it all day. <laughs> Should we switch the uncorrelated, Sean? Let's do it. So this is going to be the Jumbo Shrimp to Jimbo Fisher uncorrelated. <laughs> that's that's great. <laughs> I was pretty proud one of, of that one, one. Of, one of your best. <laughs> so this first story, I think the first story is the best here. This involves Red Lobster, and it is a good news, bad news story. And Red Lobster goes overboard with endless shrimp deal. The owner of Red Lobster, the parent company, said the all-you-can-eat shrimp was priced too low, resulting in better traffic but significant losses. (laughs) 
Yes. I, I think, what was it? They lost $11 million in the quarter. So Red Lobster posted an operating loss of $11 million in Q3. They cited this ultimate endless shrimp deal as part of the reason. Sounds like people ate a lot more shrimp than what they paid for. Yes. So the- for, for $20, guests were able to choose two types of shrimp and have as much as they wanted. Yes. Yeah. The, it, I believe the CEO said, you know, in retrospect, they probably priced it a little too low. Maybe they'll do be able to do the promotion again in the future, but set a different different price point. Yeah, the deal will now cost you twenty five dollars. Apparently, if you go, if you go to Red Lobster today, the ultimate endless shrimp deal is now twenty five dollars. He said, "quote We need to be much more careful regarding what are the entry points and what is the price point we are offering for this promotion moving forward." So that that's a tough look, but just just the idea that a CEO of a company had to get on in front of investors and say. Our customers ate too much shrimp. We lost $11 million this quarter. <laughs> it is <laughs> one of the more bizarre crazy, stories. A crazy thought. In today's CPI release, Sean, fish and seafood down 1.8% year over year. So, man, that's, a, that's a positive sign. <laughs> Maybe we'll get some of it back in Q4. Right. There we go. So, hey, we're all, people are always looking for good deals. It sounds like if you are a good eater, that might be a good deal to, you know, to look up on. If one of Red your Lobster. concerns is is rising cost impacting your confidence, you're gonna find a deal and you're gonna you're gonna fill your stuff with as much shrimp as you can. Go at lunchtime, you don't need to eat dinner. There, just go crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Actuarial gain right there. <laughs> Split the difference, go three thirty. <laughs> there you go. So Jimbo Fisher, the head football coach or former head football coach at Texas A and M was fired, but they're going to pay him $75 million. Yes, the biggest buyout in college football history by a wide margin. Jimbo Fisher was hired in 2021 on a 10-year, $95 million contract. He will be paid out the $75 million that he still owed post-firing, which equates to roughly $26,000 per day for the next eight years to not coach football. Crazy. The next largest buyout behind him was Gus Malzahn, he was fired from Auburn. His buyout was $21 million. So there's a more than $50 million gap between the first and second. I don't even know what to say about this. And it's for Texas a and I mean, no disrespect if you're a Texas A&M college football fan, but you haven't been great in, in a good while. Like Johnny Manziel is not walking through that door. That's a lot, a lot of money. I think it just shows how flush college athletics is with cash. That they can do this. It's a big business. College sports is big business. You think about Texas A&M, they have six or seven home games a year. How much money they make from those? How much money they make from the TV contracts? The fact that football, usually for most schools, it's football and basketball that fund all the other sports. It is a money printing machine. It's crazy, crazy, crazy. But not a not a bad deal for Jimbo. No. If you're not wanted there anymore and you're <laughs> you're getting paid basically like a new Honda Civic every day for the next eight years. Yes, he can eat all of the shrimp he wants now. <laughs> yeah, eat, Endless hey, shrimp for Forget Jimbo the Fisher. deal. Give me the surf and turf at <laughs> the four seasons, man. Forget red lobster. Right. But anyway, I feel like I go could go on a rant right now about college sports and especially college football players should be paid since they bring in so much revenue. If you're willing to buy out your coach for $75 million. We throw it. You're blurring the lines between like college athletics and like big business in my mind. Throw throw a few bucks at the plug. But anyway, that's a whole whole separate <laughs> discussion. Yeah, crazy amount of money. Is he a state employee? Do you know? Like I'm pretty sure James Franklin is a state employee. State employee. It would make sense, right? A&M's a state school. Definitely a state school. I'll so. have to look that one up when we're done. Anyway, parting thoughts, Sean? 47 days till the end of the year. Probably only 30-ish trading days in there. Hmm. Getting close. Get close. Let's try to keep those 47 days drama free. Drama free. All right. Until next week. Until next week.